0: Hi, this is Judy Carter, and this is the Power of Purpose podcast, where we explore how to live a purposeful life and how creative people like yourself can make a living doing what you love. And I'm here on a Sunday. Maybe those are church bells. Get up and get yourself to church. I'm in Chautauqua Institution, and I'm here with someone who truly turned a mess in her life to a success that is helping everybody else. Lennon Flowers is in the house. Hi. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So good to have you here. We've um, First of all, can you talk a little bit about, before we, we get into our personal conversation, about what you're doing at Chautauqua, what you're doing here?
1: Yeah, um, so I'm speaking on Monday um, as the co-founder of of um, two projects and organizations, The Dinner Party and The People's Supper. and Our work is really around um, healing the sources of isolation that keep us separate from ourselves and from one another. Um, And doing that in two ways. Um, One, for the last five and a half years, my work has been anchored in working with grieving 20 and 30-somethings and serving as How a How old were you when, when you started that? Yeah, um, I was, I mean, the dinner party, everything in my life has um, started by accident. Um, I was 21 when my mom died, um, and three years later, after a brief stint in D.C. Um, post-college, I moved out to Los Angeles, and I was, I guess, 24 when I met um, the person that would become my co-founder, um, Carla. And uh, we started sitting down for dinner and talking about something that we never um, had otherwise really opened up about.
0: Oh, so her, her parent also died in her life? Is that what happened with yeah. Carla?
1: Yeah, so um, we were walking back from coffee one day um, to our office. We were both new to L.A. We had both moved out there for our musician boyfriends. Um, and Carla mentioned um, that her father had died about six months before of um, brain cancer. Um, And she was um, 21 at the time and had just uh, graduated college and moved back home um, to spend, um, you know, the last six months of his life caregiving. Um, And um, my mom had died while I was in college. She was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer my senior year of high school. Um, and it certainly wasn't that that was the first conversation I'd ever had about it um, But it was the first conversation that I actually wanted to keep talking um, That I remember and then we got back to the office and of course it's not something for the office water cooler um, So where were I, you
0: working at the time?
1: I was working. Um, I just moved out to LA. I was working um, for uh, Good good core, um, which was a media company um, anchored um, around the idea that uh, you know that um, kind of overused tagline of, we can do well by doing good, but what does it look like to um, bring forward today's leading companies and foundations and people with massive microphones, massive platforms, um, but too often an inability to engage people in the things that they care about, which are their values and causes. So um, we were looking at um, the big kind of questions of, how do you change culture? How do you move people to action? And I think that that was a really good breeding ground um, for some of the early thinking that would become the dinner party.
0: Wow. These church bells are driving me yep, a little please. crazy. Let's, what about you? you let's move to... inside. Okay. We have moved inside. No more church bells, which I thought was just like a little dingling, but then they're playing a playlist of some sort. And so let's go back to what we're talking about. You were talking about the beginnings of the dinner party. Yeah. Right. And it started with this conversation... And you had a lot more to talk about, as we all do. My mom died, what was it thirty-five years ago? Mm. And the story doesn't stop. I still need to talk about it.
1: Yeah, doesn't end. Yeah, and I think you know that was really surprising to me. Um, I was, you know, a nerdy kid um, and kind of exap- expected that I'd be able to, you know, like. Do my grief homework and get grief grade A acceptance, <laughs> and then it would be done. And, you know, so lo and behold, three and a half years after she had died, um, you know, part of what I found Um, for me not talking about it for years had been a real survival strategy you know um, in the four years that she was sick and I was in school I did everything in my power um, to stay as busy as possible to fill every hour um, with student I was really involved in the kind of social justice community on campus um, and it was about separating everything from my world as a college student um, from everything that was going on at home. get busy.
0: That's just exactly. get really super... I still um, do that.
1: You know, and I think, like... <laughs> survival. I, and it's a survival skill, you know. Um, and I think that there are... Realizing that, you know, the number of ways in which we compartmentalize pain um, at some point or another, um, it will find a way to bleed out of us um, if we don't open that up intentionally. What um, do but mean it you also bleed really- out
0: of us? Do you mean um, in destructive behavior
1: yeah I mean I think that there's that um cliche you know that hurt people hurt people um and that that you know holds a lot of truth in it I think the more that we do to kind of bottle up um who we are and what we've been through and the pain and hurts in our lives you know at some point it's going to find a way to erupt you know whether that's in our relationships um you know with one another or um you know as we see on um you know, displayed in our headlines and more public.
0: I'm very yes. interested in that moment, in, in these moments of um, what. Why does one person take their mess and turn it into the purpose of their life? Or as I, I say, you know, mess to m- message, and w- why do some people take it to destroy themselves and others? I mean, what is that difference? What did you do, because obviously you're here at Chautauqua as uh, a speaker on the main stage, and you're speaking with, um, being interviewed by, can you tell, tell us her name?
1: By Krista Tippett with On Being.
0: Yeah. On Being, who has a podcast of over a million listeners. So what is the difference um, that you did and maybe that can help other people who are right now really suffering and going. And we, and we all know, you know, like in my profession, they say uh, comedy is tragedy plus time. So there's that time element. But do you know what it is that turned it into your life purpose?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, so I, I want to say that, you know, our pain can be our poison and it can be our power. Wow. And most of the time it can be both, you know.
0: Pain can be our poison or pain can be our power.
1: And I think if I have any skill in the world, it's, you know, just uh, a lack of fear of showing the like messes, um, you know, of my own life, you know. Um, And so, you know, and for me, at many points in my life, that pain has been a poison, you know, and it has left me, you know, different episodes of, you know, really deep depression um, and feeling profoundly alone through this experience. Um, And I think it was around that first dinner table um, and what, you know, grew into a very good group of friends as we kept gathering, you know, on a monthly basis um, that suddenly, you know, for the first time I had something that was life affirming attached to an experience that had only ever been a source of real hard, had only ever, you know, kept me kind of separate from the rest of my, you know, peer group um, and the, you know, um, real source of, you know, I'm so sorry for making you uncomfortable with my life. I promise to keep that quiet next time, you know, but then you realize that, in fact, every one of us, you know, has, um, you know, our monsters in our closets, right? And the things that we're shoving under the rug and trying desperately um, to ensure that people, you know, won't uh, peek into. And I think in a lot of ways, we end up hiding from ourselves and from each other. Um, And so for me, you know, the most freeing moments in my life um, were when I could come together with a group of people and say, oh, you too, huh? You know, and cry and express. At the time, I had a lot of unprocessed anger. Um, You know, I needed to talk about the things in my life that could not be fixed that could only be held. Um, and, and I think, you know, we live in a culture that is so individual. Um, and you know, this, I, and I'm, a pretty poor p- practitioner of self-care and, um, you know, working on getting better. And, and so this is not at all to disparage what we do to take care of ourselves. But I think we failed to recognize that, um, you know, actually self-care only works in collectives, right? Um, what we need is collective care. It's the humans self-care. and our lives that care That's for us.
0: Some of what you're saying, I, I really bear repeating, self-care... It, it does better in a communal setting? Is that what you're saying? I think self-care doesn't work, self-care doesn't work is
1: isolate, in isolation, right? That we live in a time of endemic loneliness, right? Um, that depression rates are going up. Suicide rates are at an all-time high. 30 per- they've gone up 30% over the last 20 years. And they've gone up in every single state but one where it was high to begin with. And when you unpack that data, the more disturbing part of it is that more than 50% of people who die by suicide had no known men- mental health problems, right? And so what that actually tells us is that we're hiding from each other right? We're not going to existing services. Whatever we carry, we carry it alone. And I think, you know, part of what has become what was surprising to me, um, you know, and fed what would become my life's work that I had no idea at the time, was that some of the most meaningful relationships and friendships in my life were started around conversations that were the last thing that I would otherwise choose to talk about.
0: Wow. So, Let's go back to this time where you gather with a group of friends to specifically talk about it, or was this sort of uh, more formal or informal? Was it like, this is what we're doing, or did it just end up, that's what happened?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it is important to note that it was actually very intentional, right? And I got an email um, from my friend Carla, you know, again, this was years before, like, we would ever talk about the word, you know, like, maybe there's a thing here and we should start a nonprofit, right? This was my friend Carla emailed a group of people that she had met in random circumstances in her life, who she knew um, at the time all had lost parents, um, and invited folks over for dinner. And I still remember that kind of clenched stomach Um, You know, as I walked up the hill towards her, she was living in this like super divey group house and had like, you know, had to make sure that her almost homeless roommate was not going to be home to invade the space. (laughs) um, Very particular um, and very uh, vulnerable conversation. And I was super nervous and I think all of us were. But, um, you know, it was this space, you know, it was um, she lit up a bunch of candles, you know, on a back porch um, and made a paella. Um, that was her father, who was a, um, hit, her grandfather had immigrated from Spain. And it was one of his favorite dishes. And from there, it just, you know, you realize when you actually open the door on conversation, I was surprised by how much I had to say.
0: Wow. And did did this continue? Did you start? Yes. Did it become a regular yeah. thing? And then did it expand to more people? Or was it a closed group? Because I imagine you don't want to have anybody there that... Uh, people feel uncomfortable with.
1: Totally, totally. So that, um, you know, for about probably a couple of years, we would meet every month or two, you know, it wasn't on a schedule or anything like Mm -hmm. that. But as with any good group of friends, you know, you want to see each other. So we would get together for dinners and, you know, and catch up about everything that was happening in our lives from you know, relationships to, you know, what was happening in our jobs. Um, But there was a door open to all of the kind of reflections that attended loss and grief, right? And this was a group of people that, you know, in our 20s were thinking about things that, you know, weren't were fairly atypical, um, you know, for 20-somethings around what is, you know, our purpose and what are we doing here with our time on earth? Um, Because, you know, we unfortunately... um, know know all too clearly that it's limited right
0: I would imagine dealing with death um, in your 20s when hardly anybody else's does create isolation in itself because your experience is so different than everyone else of your age group
1: yeah and and so and that you know it's interesting. So that was, it was a kind of veil between, I felt like it was a veil between me and the rest of, you know, like my peer group, you know, whether that was socially or in a workplace. Um, And I wanted so desperately to be normal. And I had grown up in, you know, a kind of complicated family and a complicated history, you know, so the the kind of desire for normalcy, um, you know, was not at all new to me. Um, But it did, it kind of compounded that sense of, you know, isolation that I think is a natural response to grief, whoever you are at whatever age. Um, But what's interesting about that, I think, is that, you know, you then, we, you know, realized we actually did know more people who'd experienced, you know, major losses, whether that was of a parent or of a sibling or of a partner, um, you know, or of a dear friend, you know. And it was just that because we were all afraid of talking about it right we were all afraid of you know creating that deer in headlights moment Um, you know, we just never went there. And so as we became more comfortable with our stories, you know, friends came forward and were like, hey, me too, or, you know, this happened to a friend of mine and I told them about what you were doing, um, you know, and would you be interested in starting this in DC or in San Francisco? My um, co-founder's therapist, you know, um, had two other women. And she was like, I think, you know, they might be interested. Um, And so we very slowly kind of began to grow um, just via friend, via word of mouth, and friends and friends of friends, and then eventually, you know, you realize like, oh, lo and behold, this isn't rocket science, um, and there are actually a whole lot more people out there with this particular shared experience who are really craving conversation. We just don't know it.
0: So, so friends in DC, friends in different cities, start asking you. So, how did this grow into? I don't know what you call it. You call it your foundation, your yeah, group, I mean, your... We're now
1: a nonprofit. with a, a non-profit. staff of eight. Okay, okay you know? give, what's the website? The, www.thedinnerparty.org. Okay, um,
0: thedinnerparty.org. And so how did this grow to something that's healing you very deeply personal to recognizing that other people needed it and it, and it became... This amazing organization.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the answer is slowly. And it was, you know, with a lot of hard work and a lot of, you know, learning by doing and like, well, shit, that went Mm -hmm. badly, you know. And I think, you know, it was...
0: Was there a moment of... um I need to help others. I need to form I mean, How did I, that come together? It's interesting. I'm trying i trying to figure that out. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think for me, I'm so envious of people with their, like, lightning bolt moments where they were, like, you know, out mm-hmm. on a run and something just flashed before them and they knew exactly what they would be doing with their entire lives. I have only ever been a really bad predictor of my own life. Um, so it was iterative, you know, um, Carla and I were living together at the time, um, you know, in a group house in LA, which is still my home and still dinner party headquarters. Um, and we would drive into the office and, you know, talk about, um, you know, our relationship to grief as a culture and as a society and what was really effed up in it, you know, and what would it take Um, you know, for people, it was by chance and by accident that she happened to know enough people to fill a table that first time with, you know, five and what became a group of six people who'd all experienced a major loss. But I think for a lot of young people particularly, the problem is not just a lack of self-permission to talk about this, right? It's that you actually don't know enough people to fill a table with, you, you know, and all of the other compounding sources of isolation, you know, um, for, you know, stigmatized sources of loss or ones, um, you know, born of real trauma, whether that's suicide or homicide, um, you know, or the loss of a partner, you know, in your 20s, it's really hard to find others who are going through it. There are, yeah, um, but that's what you know. At a certain point, this had kind of overtaken my nights and weekends, um, and you know, so you've taken over
0: your nights and weekends because you're having conversation with Carla about how this has made us feel so much better. This has taken us out of isolation, and how do we help other people? Is that the nature of your conversation? Or was it how do we formalize this or I mean when did how did it come that you got online you go the org. Yeah
1: I mean so again, it wasn't a single conversation. it was a lot of conversations. Eventually we looked into, you know we realized I think as we came to understand that this was um, you know there was a much bigger shared story here. Um, we knew pretty quickly um, I think two things. One um, was that, You know it would the need um you know and the you know uh folks who were craving the same things that we had was far bigger than our friend circle and two what we were doing wasn't rocket science so we didn't actually need to be in the room and i think that you know if you want a very um you know we live in kind of command and control times and you know i i tend to be a little bit of a control freak in certain aspects Um, But I think we knew at the very beginning that, you know, the problem was um, that what we wanted to do was, you know, change culture, right? And that required, um, you know, we couldn't do that by flying into a bunch of places and hosting dinners, right? And first of all, it wasn't sustainable for creating the real um, sources of friendship and connection, right? Because there was, you know, we didn't have enough time in the day and couldn't be in enough places to do that on a recurring basis every month or two. So we started... Training other hosts, you know, and identifying what are some of the tips and tricks, you know, for kicking off a conversation and talking about something other than the weather or, you know, entertainment in L.A. or traffic, Um, you know, because you realize, like, however much people are really craving this, right, actually going there. Um, can be a scary thing you know and so you've got to have somebody who starts that conversation and we found that you know from our own experiences um, you know what we were looking for wasn't experts in grief we certainly weren't experts um, but people who could you know name their own vulnerabilities and messes right and you know kind of role model what it was to not be you know Um, you know, like a grief expert, like, I went through this thing in the past and I've got everything figured out. Let me give you all of the advice in the world, because that's the least helpful thing, right? But instead, we're able, um, you know, to sit with the kind of unfixable in their own lives, and we're, you know, asking deeper, harder questions of themselves, Um, and also in a place in relationship to grief where they could hold space for other people. And so as that had kind of begun to grow in other cities, um, you know, I think that there was a moment in which I was like, you know, and I, I came from the world of, you know, like the high-impact nonprofits. We had been working in media around, you know, like what, how do you activate people behind a cause? How do you spread an idea um, and not just a program? So um, at the end of 2013, I quit my job um, and moved my mom's life insurance policy um, and money um, into my checking account that um, we started a crowdfunding campaign. Um, and by that point, you know, there were like a like hundred or so people, maybe a little more, um, who'd been involved in this. There were friends and family, you know, who had been kind of following what we were doing for the last couple of years. We had enough like initial momentum and support um, to get started, and so we did.
0: Wow, and now, how do people, um, how, how do most people find you? And organize their own in various cities. what what is where are you now with um, so, with your outreach and how many people
1: you're reaching? And yeah, um, you know, so the nice thing about this is that we've never had to market. Um, and so we're active in about 95 cities um, across the country and a few around the world. Um, and you know one of I think there are two pieces, you know, to our work, again, because it's not, the key thing it doesn't help to build community with a hundred people in a city right it helps to build 10 communities of 10 people who get to know each other and each other's stories really deeply over time and if you want relationships right there's something very powerful sitting down one time and seeing a head nod about something that you thought you were completely alone in feeling right and we you know only need to look to you know me too and the whole host of, you know, uh, movements, you know, that are taking fire in our online spaces as people come out of the closet and name their stories, right, and name their sources of pain and hurt. But the reality is that's not enough to generate real relationships and the people that will be there for you at two in the morning when um, you're having a really shitty night, right, or, um, you know, on a day in which you had a huge win and you want to celebrate with somebody but the person who would otherwise be your first phone call is dead right we need communities who can care for each other and so that became our focus of how do we build small tables that meet on an ongoing basis you know and again we're not prescriptive they tend it, that tends to be every other month is the average you know and some meet monthly and For some, it's more quarterly, but the commitment is that this is an ongoing experience, right? And you are getting to know each other as human beings and generating, you know, like um, friendship. And so the second piece to that, um, and if you're going to do that, right, most of the reasons that, you know, communities don't, they don't sustain themselves simply because, you know, life gets in the way um, for a whole host of really banal reasons, you know, of, Um, you know, you're too far spread across the city, you're never going to cross the 405 in LA, you know. Um, So then we began matching people, um, you know, by uh, neighborhood and by uh, age so that folks who were living through others shared milestones, you know, early 20-somethings to other early 20-somethings and late 30-somethings to other late 30-somethings. And people that, you know, we could be um, folks who shared common identities you know um, across a kind of whole range um you know of factors and um, people who shared common life uh, who shared common loss experiences right Um, And sometimes that was, you know, tables comprised entirely of, uh, you know, folks who'd experienced uh, suicide loss. But more often it was just making sure that people existed in pairs, right? Because it can be a really isolating thing if you're the one person who lost your partner at a table with everybody else who lost parents. Um, And for a lot of people, again, it's the problem isn't just... I want to talk about this, and I don't know how. The problem is, I want to talk about this, and I don't know with whom. So we've connected in the last five years 6,000 people to one another um, locally. I got goosebumps. <laughs> I got
0: goosebumps. <laughs> it's so, it's, it's, it's just dead, dead on what the world needs right now. Right now, I don't. I shouldn't have said dead on.
1: I'm sorry. Like so <laughs> We're really bad. great at like the, the kind so of whole range of um, weird dead jokes, you know. And I think that that's that is another like it's a really critical kind of component to this because you know I, I was asked by this you know forgive my French like jackass older guy the other day yeah you know like so sitting down um, you know and talking about grief like that sounds awful why would you want to do that and it was like because it's not just sitting down a first and foremost there can be a real source of relief when you're able to cry in front of somebody you know um and when you don't have to project, you know, like this perfect image of having it all together, um, you know, which are, you know, online personas and are like mm-hmm. everybody's got their own, you know, personal brand and mm-hmm. in these times, you know, can lead us to do. But it's also because it's not. You know, there is as much laughter as there is tears, right? It is a space in which, um, you know, we can have, we don't have to be politically correct. We can make jokes that would make other people uncomfortable, right, regarding death and loss because this is a community of people that get it and who have reverence for the things that deserve reverence and irreverence for all the rest.
0: Wow. Do How do you people then stay together if they're meeting once or once a every- week? few months do you have is it um something that th- that they meet within your website the org, or is it just left to their own devices
1: yeah so we have um a community management team which is you know um kind of each person takes a particular region and you know builds relationships with the hosts there um you know and is able to be a sounding board you know when something awkward happens right and you're like I don't know how to deal with this you know Mm -hmm. um that you know chances are you're not the first person to encounter that um and so we can kind of coach you through it we can coach you through you know like I would love to host but I live in a tiny studio apartment where I have really obnoxious roommates Um, Or, you know, my kid is going to be running around and distracting, right? We can find other ways. So most dinners happen in private homes. Um, Some, you know, within a table, you know, you might alternate. You've got a host who's kind of there to kick off the conversation um, and being mindful, you know, of what's happening for folks, you know, in a room. Um, but, you know, uh, other people can sometimes physically host within a table or you use public parks or whatever that is. You what know?
0: happens when somebody is um, needing more than conversation or perhaps gets suicidal or gets, uh, I mean, how does, how does that work when it's beyond the help of this group or maybe a burden to the group yeah. in some way, you um, know?
1: So, I mean, first of all, we do a screening. um, So everyone applies to join the dinner party, um, you know, and we're through that, um, you know, and we ask real questions. You know, it's not just, like, your name and what was the date of death, you know, (laughs) God. And your sign. Um, Exactly. (laughs) Um, You know, but tell us about yourself, you know, and what brings you to the table and where are you right now? Um, You know, and for folks that, you know, clearly kind of express... Um, a longing for something that we cannot do, right? Because we're not trained professionals, you know? This Mm -hmm. is a community of peers, and I think that that's been really helpful. You know, early on, we had to get very clear about what we were and what we weren't, you know? Um, This is not a space, you know, um, for counseling. You've got counselors for that, Um, you know? And we want the dinner party to, to be one avenue of healing, not the only avenue in your life, right? Um, But then when, you know, something happens around a table, um, then if, you know, folks are um, uncomfortable or there's a real clear source of acute need that is beyond our capacity to serve it, then we'll have a conversation, right? And we can kind of coach our host. Um, you know, on how to do that, if they want to be the person to, you know, just check back in and say, like, hey, I noticed in this moment, you know, um, you said X, right, and mirroring back with their own language. And I just wanted to see what's really going on here, right? And I think, you know, particularly um, when it comes to, you know, suicidal ideation, um, part of the reality, you know, and I think, you know, there's a lot of growing body of evidence Um, that this is something we just got to get better at talking about the things that are hurting us, right? Um, And there's a lot of people who live with chronic suicidal ideation or go through moments, um, you know, in which um, and episodes of depression, right? Um, And our goal in this space is to, you know, Um, create an environment in which we don't have to be afraid of each other, right? Um, But we can say, you know, we can trade therapist contact information freely, you know, and we can say with zero stigma or shame attached, you know, like, hey, I'm a little worried about you, you know, and what are we going to do to keep you safe tonight?
0: Wow. I wish, I'm just so upset that you weren't around when I turned 30 and lost my mom, so... (laughs) I, I like I'm feeling that what that would feel like for me yeah. listening to that and um, just to have a place to because it's everything's inside your head at that point, right And it's boomeranging inside there and I did the same thing you did. I got very, very, very busy yeah. and, what a relief and I think I just yesterday I told you one thing where I said um, at three months I was so upset that time was passing because it meant I had to be over it yeah. and, and I hadn't even started Yeah. and I never really did have a, have a place where I could um, talk and, and, and then you said to me a lot of people feel that way and just you saying that something that happened such a long time ago kind of went oh Oh, I'm normal.
1: Yeah. Oh, this is
0: normal. This is not something, you know, the hiding part and the secrecy part is the hardest part. At the end of this podcast, we always um, give some takeaways. And I think one takeaway, which is so strong is and so easy, is um, go to your website. Yes. <laughs> <Right>? I mean, <laughs> I think that's uh, a really easy one the dinner dot org and i think it's really good to suggest if it's for 20s and 30s more the millennials right and if you know somebody um who needs this please email them like write text email them right now um so they are not so alone and and i think that's such a gift you can give somebody right now yeah um but I do believe that the other takeaway um, is the act of creation on, on your end, of turning, taking your mess, and um, and this is what's wrong with the world, I feel, and what's so right about what you're doing, is when we have pain, it's it's internal, and there's somehow this aspect of compassion, empathy for others who have it. And I think it was because of Carla perhaps you could see that and share it between the two of you. But that, that's the answer. Yeah, that is the answer. So if you are suffering with with someone, there of course, I live in a large city, Los Angeles, and there's so many groups that are absolutely free. It's this notion, of get out of the house and find any sort of even you know the twelve step groups they have Don't one lie. for everything um, to be around other people and then to go how can I help other people because through that that helping other people is 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 the creative act. And that healing act.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it's the. Let's be clear: post-traumatic growth is a thing for a reason, right? And that is not to say Wait, post-traumatic
0: post post traumatic
1: growth. growth is like okay. an academic term, right? But it like describes a whole host of you know behaviors um, where you know people grow. Right and are and give back. Find ways to give back. You're blowing my mind. I love this.
0: It's it's like (laughs) I've been starving for these (laughs) phrases. Post, I've had it. Yeah, exactly. I've had it. But you put it in three words. I go. (gasps) Yes, that's it. Post traumatic traumatic
1: growth. Growth, and you know, and I hesitate sometimes. You know, like I think the most extraordinary human beings I know. not, not, you know. Fortunately, I know a few who have been spared pain, but not many, right? Most of the amazing human beings I know had been fed and fueled um, by the sources of hurt in their lives, right? Um, and there is real science behind that. Now, that is not to say if you talk about the gift of suffering to somebody who is suffering, you're an asshole, okay? And sometimes we just need to be able to sit and suck. And witness that with one another. But I think that, you know, we're meaning-making creatures, you know, and humans long for, you know, a sense of purpose and calling and the ability to serve one another. And I think, you know, we live in these times where it's it's very popular and obviously we can see all of the ways in which, you know, like our hardwiring, you know, does not actually um, is it can be very tribal and very isolating and very hurtful to one another. Um, but there's this whole other side of human behaviors, you know, of the ways in which we tend and befriend is another academic term, right? Um, and reach out and create communities of care in some of our moments of deepest need, because that isn't just helping you; it's helping me, right? And saying, I'm not here to be the helper it's because I long to be a part of this community, too, right? I long for connection, um, you know, and uh, and for, you know, belonging, right? Um, and that we can, you know, help each other through this. Um, I think that's what I mean, you know, like, you don't get – we don't get out of this life – we get out of this life alone, but we don't get through this life alone.
0: And as so many people say, that that real purpose – is the gift that you give to others. Yeah. If you would like to learn more about turning your purpose into a career, go to the messageofview.com where I'll give you free access to my online course. Click the button in the top banner when you get there. If you'd like to learn more about what I'm doing, then go to judycarter.com. Thanks for listening, and let's find your message and launch your career.